Welcome to the Feminist Radical Podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest coffee addiction, Ashley Ray, and it is awesome to have you here. Before we go any further, of course, though, it's important that we take a moment to acknowledge the First Nations people on whose land each of us is upon today. For me, it is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and extend that to their families and kin. I acknowledge their deep, ongoing connection to country and all of its waterways, and acknowledge that this land was never seeded. Alright, are you ready to jump into some amazing content today? Because I've got a ripper episode planned for you. Remember that on this podcast we talk about things that are taboo and possibly make us a bit uncomfortable and can be a bit triggering. So remember to take care of your emotional health and well-being throughout this episode and if you need to take breaks or stop listening, please do so. Also a reminder that this content is not necessarily appropriate for small ears that might be trying to get a bit of a insight into what the grown-ups are doing. Okay, I can't wait for you to get into this episode with me and if you want to connect on social media, please do. All of the links, as always, are in the show notes. Welcome to the Feminist Radical Podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest coffee addiction, Ashley Ray, and it is awesome to have you here. Before we go any further, of course, though, it's important that we take a moment to acknowledge the First Nations people on whose land each of us is upon today. For me, it is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and extend that to their families and kin. I acknowledge their deep, ongoing connection to country and all of its waterways, and acknowledge that this land was never seeded. Alright, are you ready to jump into some amazing content today? Because I've got a ripper episode planned for you. Remember that on this podcast we talk about things that are taboo and possibly make us a bit uncomfortable and can be a bit triggering. So remember to take care of your emotional health and well-being throughout this episode. And if you need to take breaks or stop listening, please do so. Also a reminder that this content is not necessarily appropriate for small ears that might be trying to get a bit of a insight into what the grown-ups are doing. Okay, I can't wait for you to get into this episode with me and if you want to connect on social media, please do. All of the links, as always, are in the show notes. I've literally just um, logged off from my consultation with the government about um, how they can reform the justice system. So, you know, every time I go into these consultations, it always surprises me how much I am personally affected by how tough these conversations are because they're really hard. 
it's really hard to you know sometimes you talk about things that are really difficult you have to draw on your own personal experiences and think about things that you've been through or things that people have told you that they've been through um and it's really really difficult to sometimes not be an emotional wreck in front of the government um it doesn't mean that the conversations aren't productive i think they really are i think i think these conversations are actually really good i think we have a whole lot of bureaucratic processes that get in the way of stopping these progressing um as far as they could go um I can't tell you all of the things that we talked about, but what I can tell you is it was a really thorough discussion. It's going to be an ongoing one because there's lots of things to cover. Um, I didn't agree with everything that everybody said because there was not just me in that uh, meeting. There were two other um, stakeholders plus the government staffers. Um, and while I don't necessarily agree, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't hear them out. It doesn't mean that it's also not a really, really hard thing to hear. Um, and in a way, I really appreciate when I don't agree and, you know, all of that, because it broadens my thinking and it does get me wondering about different things. But at the same time, <laughs> it's also sometimes like physically painful to my brain to turn something over that I fundamentally don't agree with or believe to be true or accurate. Um, we got into some really interesting conversations about consent and the definitions of consent. I can tell you that, um, which is something that is being talked a lot about in the media at the moment, especially around the work that Saxon Mullins, the advocate from New South Wales, has done around affirmative consent laws. Um, and it was kind of fascinating to talk with the other advocates about what we think should be included in a legal definition of consent and the affirmative consent model and, and how the guiding principles of legislation should apply or not apply. One of the things that I can tell you that I, I have advocated for in these meetings and continuously, so um, as a bit of background, um, the person that I spoke to today is someone that I have spoken to about four or five times in different consultations in the last 18 months around different parts of legislation at different stages, again relating to um, sexual violence and we've gotten to know each other a bit and um, last year I emailed them a huge list that I had of reforms that really really needed to happen to support victims of sexual assault because it really felt to me at the time that there was nothing there were crumbs there was just absolutely nothing for victims to be supported with and everything was geared towards supporting perpetrators to re-enter society or just not to be sentenced at all and to be honest I feel that that's still the case I think our legal system has a very very long way to go in actually offering any kind of legitimately fair court um, proceedings when it comes to sexual assault because our court system is fundamentally founded in patriarchy um, it was written and founded by cishet white men 
to benefit them at a time when women were considered to be property, at a time when it was illegal to be gay or queer, at a time when Indigenous and First Nations people weren't even considered people. So it's not set up to work for anyone except for cishet white men. Um, so I feel I'll just walk you through where I'm at because you know I find these conversations can be really really triggering in a lot of ways and I do feel a bit triggered because I mean it's manageable I've had a couple of flashbacks throughout that consultation as happens um and again when I go into these meetings I'm very much aware that it's not just about me and how I feel and what happened in my own cases and my own experiences it's also about what happens to the millions of other people who are going to be impacted by these laws and there are so many people that are impacted in so many ways um it's about the perpetrators and how we how we work with perpetrators in community and stop them from reoffending or offending in the first place how do we as a as a state support them to be productive members of our community because newsflash they do walk among us hardly any of them are ever sentenced to any kind of jail time and even if they are at some point they're usually released within a couple of years so they are out there they're probably you know in the supermarket with us um you know buying milk and eggs just like anybody else um and it's really tough to turn your mind to those uncomfortable sides of the justice system where it's not just about the light and good and easy thing to do which is supporting victims and you know honestly that is a very easy thing to do like everyone can get behind that we've seen that um the victorian government is you know for the most part very willing to get behind victims but it's really tough to talk about the flip side of that which is the perpetrators and prevention um a lot of the consultation was focused on the Victorian Law Reform Commission's um, report which came down last month on improving the justice system response to sexual assault. Now that's a 600 plus page report. Um, I said in the first bonus episode of this where I was talking about how I prepare for these consultations that I was going to read it. Now I couldn't get through 600 pages. I read the executive summary. Um, and some of those, this is a publicly available document, by the way, and I will drop it in the Patreon if you want to check it out. Um, it is a lot of really good reforms. It calls for a lot of really, really great things to change our justice system. And I think it's fairly well balanced in lots of ways. I think there's probably more that could be added to it. Um, like, like it is sort of gives high level overviews of lots of different things that need to change in 600 pages um the three things that i really brought to government today i can tell you what those are <laughs> the three things i brought to government today um were things after going through the report that i consider to be priorities um 
things that will help move us forward in big and long-term ways. So the first thing that I said is I think that there are three steps to what we do and how we do it. The first thing I think is that um, first point of contact services, so things like your social workers, your crisis counsellors, your social workers, therapists, all of that stuff, it needs to be radically funded. They need to be able to provide the services that they have to the demand that they get. And every survivor that I've spoken to who's ever sought crisis counselling has not been able to get it when they've needed it. Um, sometimes there's a six to eight week waiting list or the phone line is busy and you, your call can't be connected and it just hangs up on you. So having those first points of contact, those crisis points of contact funded as a need, like is a really good thing. Like expanding the funding and actually making sure that that funding trickles and actually is directly spent on providing services and doesn't get tied up in management um, is sort of the first thing. Another part of this is um, really deeply embedding and having experts teaching consent to our children from a very young age that needs to continue on for generations. So having this be part of your schooling and education, having this be a family approach, um, so that parents and caregivers can also participate in this type of education um, from a very, very young age um, is really important because I don't think we're going to get a society um, that really understands consent and takes it as normal and part of our culture until we start teaching it from a really young age. And we historically have not done that. Globally, almost nobody has done that. But that doesn't mean we can't do it and that we shouldn't try. Now, we already do have a respectful relationships program in schools, but I believe that that's only available in certain year levels and it's optional. So I would really advocate for mandatory consent education that is age appropriate, that is taught by experts, not by classroom teachers. And it starts from day one. It starts from it starts from preschool and kinder and goes all the way up into high school. Um, and it is embedded into everything you do all of the time. Because then we end up with a generation of kids that have grown up learning consent from such a young age. And by the time they're old enough to have their own kids they're teaching their own children consent in the home not just at school but they're learning it at home as well and by that time we hopefully have a generation being born where consent is a cultural norm that would be my hope with this because it's a it's a multi-generational project i think we're going to need to get two or three generations into this to see some real results um but it doesn't mean it can't be done. It's just one of those things that I think government doesn't like to do too well because <laughs> um, it's something that you don't see an immediate return on investment from. Government really like things that will give them an immediate boost in the polls or results that they can take to voters and say, this is why you should vote me back in. So that's one of the, those are the first two things that I said really need to happen is the consent education from a young age that involves the whole family. It's not just 
the responsibility of the child, but like caregivers and parents are involved um, and have to do it. And schools are a good hub for communities to facilitate these, for lack of a better term, classes. Um, Building from that, my next thing was around data collection and interpretation. We have so little information about what happens with sexual assault and understanding sexual assault and crimes, you know, domestic violence and all of that, particularly around barriers to reporting, barriers to going through the legal process. Like, we just don't have the data. Right now, so much of our data is nationwide, so it's nationally based. I can think of three or four studies off the top of my head um, that I know about that are nationally based. There's nothing state-specific. There's no state-sponsored studies done. There's very little in the way of crime statistics and actually understanding how sexual assault is a very, very different crime to murder or to a financial crime because sexual assault can happen 40 years ago and still be as fresh to the victim survivor today as it was back then Um, and understanding what sets it apart and we need to create and implement data collection systems so that we can better understand what's happening in our communities, what's happening in the legal system because that will help us direct funding and resources where we need it most. Because if we suddenly find out that, say, for example, one community is actually doing something really positive and we're getting almost no reports of sexual assault in this particular section of the community, then would we not want to investigate what's going on there and see what they're doing differently and see if we can translate that to other communities? Um, But also, do we not want to see how this is changing over time? Do we want to see a downward trend over the next 20 years of sexual assault reports? And not because there are barriers to reporting, but because we've actually helped victim survivors feel secure enough that when something does happen, they can come forward. But also, we've done our job in educating people about consent so that it's not happening because of a cultural belief. It's not happening because we have failed our society in, t- in teaching consent. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I said we really desperately need data collection and we need it to be designed specifically for the barriers around sexual assault because it's very, very different in different types of communities. Um, one example, uh, The two examples I can think of is in the Aboriginal community, why on earth would they feel inclined to disclose a sexual assault to the white man government? Like, no, it's not going to happen. But also thinking about it in the disability community, sometimes victims are literally not capable of communicating what's happened to them because of their disability. They might be nonverbal, they could be unconscious, um, they are extraordinarily vulnerable so we really need um, data in these really vulnerable um, we need data collection that is sensitive to these issues and can still be really effective and we need it to be interpreted in a really um, expertly done way Um, the last sort of thing that I touched on was I actually don't believe that we should have a jury of peers involved in sexual assault trials 
because of ingrained prejudices around um, gender roles and what is and is not sexual assault because what legally constitutes sexual assault does not match public attitude or community attitude um, especially if you have a very mixed jury if you have people from different cultures um, that may be more or less conservative and that come from places where the laws are very different and sexual assault isn't really considered sexual assault um, you know the bar is different um, but also understanding that we need specialist courts a really big recommendation was to have specialist courts that are designed to protect the victim survivor from um, the accused when they enter and exit the building so that they don't have to use the same entry and exit um, that they are protected inside the courtroom so the courtrooms can be designed to keep people safe and that if we are going to have a jury maybe the jury should be actually consisting of experts um, of different varieties around sexual assault so maybe you do have um, say CASA trained um, people who are part of that jury social workers you have uh, men's behavior change specialists you have you have specialists in sexual assault in different areas as part of that panel who make the decision people who understand the nuances of sexual assault understand the issues around it like power imbalances um, legal issues around consent um, all of that sort of so instead of it being a jury of your peers it is a jury of experts um, that really can understand and look at a case from both sides so that there is not an unfair advantage given to one over another. I like to think of this as, you know, leveling the playing field. Accompanying that recommendation is also to have um, specialist magistrates who are actually trained in understanding a lot of the issues surrounding sexual assault and not just the legal issues, but um, understanding different components of the crime that may be more or less impactful so things like imbalances in power um, the long-term impacts of sexual assault so the fact that 13% of survivors that we know about will end up developing a psychosocial disability and a frightening number of them will rely on Centrelink as their main form of income because they're incapable of earning their own income because they've never been supported to have justice or seek recovery resources um, so having those things having magistrates who are aware of the long-term impacts of sexual assault and how that's also going to impact the community and what that means for taxpayers because this is a lot of what they have to take into account anyway but why can't they do it with this we often see that someone is charged with a financial crime is penalized far more harshly than someone who's ever charged with a sex crime um, and I would argue that the repercussions of a sex crime are far more detrimental to the community than stealing a couple of million dollars um, because need I remind us <laughs> that um, you can steal money all you like but everyone's still alive and quite literally not everybody survives sexual assault people die people die the slow painful death of mental health and you know commit suicide but we also have people who are taken by perpetrators um, 
people whose lives are ended by their perpetrators like Jill Ma, um, like Eurydice Dixon, um, Sarah Kathaki, Courtney Heron, all of that. So having judges who understand not just the economic impact but the ripple effect that that has as being part of the case I think is really important um, because I think it's not just about one of us, it's about all of us all of us anyway um, those are the recommendations that I have made now we ran out of time and we couldn't really go any further because we there was more that we needed to talk about and that the government had on their agenda that they wanted to bring to attention um, however we're going to have more meetings about this in the future because there's so much to go through again there's like there's, I think there's close to a hundred recommendations handed down by the VLRC and I'm going to do a couple of episodes and TikToks about these recommendations because I think they're really important that we start talking about them and we start pressuring the government to follow through on them these are the recommendations that I believe are the most urgent and will and will yield us the greatest return on investment as well, long term. Um, God, I'm exhausted. I spent all day, like, kind of in waiting mode for this meeting because I was like, look, I don't want to focus my brain power on anything else because this is so important that I get right and that I am present for and able to focus on that all of my energy. I feel really tired. Um, not gonna lie, I also feel a bit teary and my stomach is in knots a little bit because it's just, you know, every even though they're very friendly and approachable, I'm just a bit emotional, you know, because it's a reminder that this is what you went through and you're here because you went through it. And yeah, so I'm going to go and eat some crispy M&Ms because that is my comfort food of choice at the moment. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope this was helpful in some way. I hope this was insightful about the kind of work that I do and what goes on when we do these kinds of consultations. Um, let me know if you have any questions or anything like that and we'll... We'll figure it out. And thank you for being part of the Patreon community to Katie and Ms. Ree. Thank you for listening to the Feminist Radical Podcast. My name is Ashley Ray. And if you would like to connect with me on social media, please do. Because that is where we get a lot of questions and conversations happening before, during and after the show. You can connect with me on Instagram at The Feminist Radical or on TikTok at Feminist Radical. I'm also on Twitter at Nerdy Pioneer. You can also email me at hello at ashleyray.com. I can't wait to connect with you, meet you and hang out with you. Uh, you can also check out the Patreon community if you would like to support this podcast. Consider becoming a patron. There's a few really cool benefits to that. Uh, go check it out. Links are all in the show notes. Have an amazing day or night, wherever you are in the world. Bye!
Thank you for listening to the Feminist Radical Podcast. My name is Ashley Ray, and if you would like to connect with me on social media, please do, because that is where we get a lot of questions and conversations happening before, during, and after the show. You can connect with me on Instagram at The Feminist Radical or on TikTok at Feminist Radical. I'm also on Twitter at Nerdy Pioneer. You can also email me at hello at ashleyray.com. I can't wait to connect with you, meet you, and hang out with you. Uh, you can also check out the Patreon community if you would like to support this podcast consider becoming a patron there's a few really cool benefits to that uh go check it out links are all in the show notes have an amazing day or night wherever you are in the world bye you know you gotta climb high.